Good evening, and welcome to the Independent News Hour. I'm your host, John Tarleton, Editor-in-Chief of the Independent, New York City's lefty newspaper and website. We're online at independent.org. That's I-N-D-Y-P-E-N-D-E-N-T dot O-R-G. And our December-January print edition is out on the streets in our uh, red and white news boxes around the city in public libraries, independent bookstores, and other venues. I'll be joined a little later in the show by my co-host, Amber Gagarian. Uh, for today's show, we're going to start by uh, looking once again at the uh, epic uh, battle for uh, the Hector LaSalle nomination for chief judge of New York State's highest court. He was selected by Governor Kathy Hochul on December 22nd. Last week, we talked with State Senator Julia Salazar about that selection, which has earned the ire of uh, progressives and others uh, in the, um, the Democratic Party coalition. Today, we'll be uh, joined in just a minute by uh, Peter Martin of the uh, uh, of the Center for Community Alternatives, who's been uh, one of the advocates uh, really leading the fight against this nomination. And since just since last week, the number of Democratic state senators who have come out against the nomination has increased from 10 to 14, which is a important threshold we'll talk about in a minute. And we'll just talk about the, the, the general trajectory of this nomination and also really how this uh, sort of broad resistance to this nomination came together. It didn't start on December 22nd. That's for sure. There's been a lot of uh, work that's gone into sort of laying the ground for this. And, and Peter has been in the middle of that and he'll be able to share some of that with us as well. In the, in our second segment, I'll be joined uh, by Amba Gagarin, the show's uh, co-host. Uh, she's traveling overseas uh, and uh, uh, is going to be out of New York for the next month or two and will be joining us intermittently, including today. And we're excited about that. And uh, we'll hear more from her. Uh, she's currently in Egypt and, uh, and in the second half of the show, we'll also be talking with the Indies, Nicholas Powers. He has a beautiful essay, uh, in the current print edition of the independent, uh, uh, called Remembering the 60s Generation. A son explores the meaning of his mother's life. Uh, his mother was a very talented woman, off-Broadway actress, uh, was involved in a, a lot of the radical movements of the late 60s, and uh, which shaped her life profoundly. And uh, Nick is going to uh, talk about all of that with us. Uh, we always enjoy uh, having Nick on the show, one of the Indies' uh, longest and running and most talented writers. Uh, so, uh, but we're going to start uh, with the uh, the battle uh, for the future of New York's highest court, the New York Court of Appeals. Uh, Hector LaSalle nominated uh, on December 22nd, a conservative jurist, former uh, uh, prosecutor from Suffolk County out on Long Island, and has met uh, more resistance than any uh, uh, judicial pick in New York in modern history, and one of the people that's right in the thick of that is Peter Martin. Peter, welcome to the Independent News Hour on WBAI. Hi, John. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, thank you for for making the time. I know you're busy these days. So uh, just since last week, uh, uh, four more state senators have come out against this nomination. Uh, Michael Giannaris, uh, Jessica Ramos, uh, both from Queens, also John Liu from Queens, and Shelly Meyer, a moderate Democrat from Westchester County. Uh, can you uh, 
talk about the significance of the opposition growing from 10 to 14, as well as the significance of some of these uh, particular individuals, Giannaris being a, a deputy a majority leader in the Senate and Ramos being the chair of the Labor Committee? Sure. So some basic math is probably helpful to uh, delay the scene here. Um, the state Senate, which has to confirm any gubernatorial nomination to the Court of Appeals, has 63 members. Confirmation requires a simple majority. So if all senators are present, you're looking at needing 32 yes votes uh, to confirm a nominee. There are currently 42 Democrats and 21 Republicans. So what that means is if 11 or more Democrats say that they will vote no on a nominee, there aren't enough votes within the Democratic conference to confirm the nominee, and therefore Republican votes would be needed. So as you mentioned, um, over the last week, the number of senators announcing opposition has grown. I mean, first, I should say, since the date of the nomination, it's grown from zero to 14, and it's grown from 10 to 14 in just the last several days. You mentioned the four who came out most recently and alluded to uh, some of the significance of those four members. You're right. Uh, Senator Gennaris is the deputy majority leader, meaning the number two Democrat in the Senate um, and the number two in the Democratic conference. Senator Ramos is the chair of the Labor Committee, reflecting the, um, you know, real strong leadership that labor unions have played in response to, uh, to the nomination. And then lastly, um, you mentioned Senator Mayer. She is from Wester- Westchester County, uh, you know, represents a suburban district. Herself is a, um, a moderate. I think she would say she's a moderate. She certainly is, um, you know, cautious and judicious, um, and thorough in all that she does. And so I think it spoke volumes that, um, a senator with a record and values like hers would come to this position and announce it publicly. Right. And what do you see as the risk in placing Hector LaSalle on, on the top court of the state as its chief judge? So the court of appeals under the last chief judge, Janet Fiore, moved dramatically to the right. Um, this is a court that for many decades was not known for being liberal or conservative or anything. Um, and it has become known as being conservative because it has been, um, across a whole range of legal issues and cases dealing with a range of policy issues. The court has sided repeatedly in recent years with the powerful. So with large corporations, with the government against citizens, uh, with landlords and real estate over tenants and on and on. Um, Justice LaSalle has not yet sat on the Court of Appeals, um, but he has sat on the next level of appeals courts in New York, um, on the appellate division, uh, in the second department, which is parts of downstate New York, um, Long Island, Westchester, Brooklyn and Queens. He's from Suffolk County. He's now the presiding justice of the second department. And he has a decade long appellate judicial record, which is like Chief Judge DeFiore before him, distinctly conservative, again, across a range of issues. Um, and so it's pretty clear to lots of us, um, you know, advocates like me who work on a number of issues, uh, it's clear to unions, it's clear to others that Justice LaSalle would continue the current harmful uh, sort of position, stance, ideology of the Court of Appeals and could even make it worse. And, and can you talk a little bit about uh, particular uh, cases and rulings he's been involved with uh, that have uh, so angered uh, union leaders as and then as well the uh, reproductive choice community to bulwarks of the Democratic Party coalition? Absolutely. 
So the first decision I'll mention, um, the one that implicates unions, is a decision from several years ago um, between Cablevision, what's now Optimum, you know, the the massive telecommunications company, and the union CWA, which represents uh, workers at the company. Um, what that case was about was you know union organizers, union staffers working for CWA as part of their organizing efforts at Cablevision made various criticisms of Cablevision. Um, I think specifically they were criticizing it over its handling of Hurricane Sandy and how that implicated its workers. Um, there is longstanding precedent, both in federal law and in New York state law, that prohibits lawsuits of a certain kind, um, you know, like individual tort lawsuits under the law. It's basically, you know, lawsuits coming after individuals, for harming another person through their speech. Um, there's a longstanding precedent prohibiting those kinds of lawsuits from union organizers, from being brought against union organizers, because that would basically make it impossible for union organizers to communicate um, in the ways they need to in order to organize with workers. In this case, uh, the second department panel that Justice LaSalle sat on in hearing a lawsuit by Cablevision against some CWA organizers, what they held is was really a loophole. They said that a defamation lawsuit could be brought against, could go forward against the CWA organizers in their personal capacities. That was what they found as the way to say the lawsuit was fine, or at least, you know, had enough merit to proceed. Um, and what we've seen, you know, in the last week and a half, the reason unions have come out so strongly against Justice LaSalle is a decision like that is a real existential threat to unions, their operations, and even to their individual staff members. Um, it, it really puts in jeopardy the ability of unions to organize at all. Um, it's especially concerning because the U.S. Supreme Court is poised to hear in just a few weeks a case which this hyper-conservative uh, U.S. Supreme Court could use to gut some of these federal protections and mean that more of these lawsuits might be brought in state courts. So that's the first one. The other one you asked about, um, a decision that Justice LaSalle was involved in that implicated reproductive rights. This was also a few years ago. This case related to an investigation by the Attorney General, the, the State Attorney General's office, into crisis pregnancy centers which are anti-abortion um, organizations that often masquerade as medical clinics. They seek to, um, you know, attract in pregnant people who are seeking information about healthcare, about all of their um, options for for their pregnancies. Um, you know, not limited to, but very much including abortions. And since crisis pregnancy centers are explicitly anti-abortion. Um, they do everything they can to dissuade people from getting abortions, often including um, sharing false information and sometimes even portraying themselves as you know, medically licensed when they're not. So the attorney general's office was investigating um, crisis pregnancy centers, had a, a lawsuit against one of them, um, and as part of that, subpoenaed them for various information. As part of that investigation and as part of this lawsuit, the attorney general's office explained that it was looking into potential unlicensed practice of medicine, uh, which would be fraudulent, clearly illegal activity. And also these organizations attempt to get in the way of New Yorkers 
you know, New Yorkers guaranteed rights to bodily autonomy and reproductive autonomy to seek out the full range of medical care uh, for their pregnancies, again, including abortions. The decision that Justice LaSalle and colleagues of his on the second department handed down limited the attorney general's investigation, said that certain parts of the subpoena or certain subpoenas they had issued um, could not be honored and they couldn't get some of the information they sought on the grounds that um, it, it was attacking the First Amendment, you know, associational rights of the crisis pregnancy centers. There are multiple issues with this decision, one being that people do not have a First Amendment right to engage in fraud. Um, so that should have been, you know, that should not have been part of the decision. But more foundational and the reason why this is really central to reproductive rights and isn't just about the First Amendment, isn't just about fraud, is that the attorney general was specifically premising the investigation on the fundamental right at the time protected by Roe v. Wade um, into you know abortion and all other pregnancy services. And the second department's decision did not mention that at all, just didn't even address that claim, didn't address that argument, effectively holding in favor of the crisis pregnancy centers and not you know giving merit to the idea that um, the right to an abortion is a compelling state interest that the government um, has a, a responsibility to help New Yorkers protect. Mm. And, and can you give us a, a, a sense here of the uh, sort of the schedule we're on in, in terms of uh, what happens uh, if uh, Hochul continues to uh, pursue this uh, nomination as far as hearings and votes and all of that? So the law specifies one thing very clearly, which is any court of appeals nomination has to be either confirmed or rejected within 30 days. Governor Hochul announced the nomination on December 22nd. So that timeline gets us to January 21st. Um, less clear under the law is exactly how the Senate should go about either confirming or rejecting. Uh, recent Senate practice is for the Judiciary Committee to hold a hearing and then an advisement vote and then for the full Senate to take a vote on nominees. That said, there has never been such a controversial court of appeals nominee before. New York went to its current system in the late seventies. So it's been, what's that? 40, 45 years or so now. Um, there has never been any nominee who has attracted, you know, such quantity of, of opposition and opposition from so many different parts of the state, including so many different senators. So I think it's an open question right now on how the Senate will choose to handle this. Um, as we've started seeing, some members of the Senate are either explicitly calling on Justice LaSalle to withdraw or calling on Governor Hochul to withdraw him um, or suggesting that uh, he should do so because uh, it's clear that he won't be confirmed. Right. And can you um, uh, give us a little bit of a sense of how uh, this uh, a broad uh, uh, coalition of groups has come together, the groundwork that went into um, into that that goes back um, at least a year or more? And uh, also, can you uh, let our listeners know uh, how they can uh, get involved if they want to make their views known to their uh, state senator? Yeah, great questions. So I think the, the first, so sort of the oldest thing I can point back to is, um, a year and a half ago when then Governor Cuomo nominated Madeline Singus to the Court of Appeals, uh, there was a small group, which I played a role in 
um, that encouraged senators and, and called on senators to reject her nomination. She, at the time, was the district attorney for Nassau County. She had a long, deeply, con- um, deeply concerning, you know, punitive prosecutorial record that uh, those of us calling on the Senate to reject her felt was disqualifying for such an important judgeship. She was unfortunately ultimately confirmed, um, but with almost all Republicans voting no and 10 Democrats voting no. So it was a fairly close, uh, a close vote that you know, then Governor Cuomo resigned fairly soon after that. Um, a new vacancy opened up on a regular schedule at the end of last year. There was some advocacy around that vacancy and that appointment. Um, but then really, what, uh, you know, what jumpstarted things was this July, now former Chief Judge Janet T. Fiore announced that she was going to resign three years before the end of her term. And so the sort of existing, the people who had engaged with the last two vacancies were, you know, again, myself included, sort of, um, as someone who had been in touch with lots of people and organizations about this previously, we were able to quickly get back in touch and figure out how we wanted to respond to this vacancy. Um, and pretty quickly over July and August, we came into alignment on a number of values and priorities that felt really important for the next chief judge. Um, and we began by articulating those in a letter that we sent to Governor Hochul in August. That letter was signed by a little over 110 organizations from across the state, um, which I think shows how quickly uh, we were able to organize and mobilize and, as I said, come to alignment on a set of um, a set of principles that lots of New Yorkers agreed on. We then had to wait a few more months for the process to play out. There's a, a process that's specified by the law um, that you know takes some time. And so we largely were waiting until the list of candidates was released, which came out right before Thanksgiving. Um, and so at that time, we did a deep dive into the records of the seven candidates um, fairly quickly, we were able to tell that several of them had really impressive, really, um, records that were right for New York, records that reflect the values of the state, um, that show, you know, top intellect, great accomplishments, all of that. And then in contrast, three candidates whose records showed they were clearly wrong for the state and should not be the next chief judge. Um, Justice LaSalle was one of the latter three. And so, when he was nominated, we had prepared lots of research on him, which we had already circulated to senators and others. Um, since then, we've done more research. We've uncovered more elements of his background that are concerning beyond what we already, you know, what we knew several weeks ago. Um, but that's the, the fairly short summary of how we've gotten to where we are. It, impressive. I mean, it, it shows that e- even uh, losing uh, efforts can lay the groundwork for uh, larger success. Uh, um, in larger coordination down the road. And, and just last of all, uh, uh, do you see what's happening here in New York it, uh, as um, an expression of the sort of the larger moment we're in where the Supreme Court has moved far to the right and and we've seen Roe versus Wade reversed and, and that uh, people are waking up to how important the courts are, including at the state level in a way that people weren't thinking about before? I think all of that's entirely right. Um, I mean, you said it about the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, it's worth mentioning that earlier this year, the Court of Appeals issued a ruling that I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with. It's the ruling that dealt with New York State's uh, redistricting after the most recent census. Um, that decision 
invalidated the congressional districts and the state Senate districts that the legislature had passed and the governor had signed. And I think that decision, along with the Supreme Court's decision in the recent Dobbs case and in other cases, is just driving home to many more New Yorkers how much courts matter, period, how much our state courts especially matter, and how our state courts can either protect us or fail to protect us, and how all of us need to engage to ensure that they do, in fact, protect us. And what's the website people can go to uh, to find out more information about the uh, campaign here before we have to cut out? The campaign is called The Court New York Deserves, and the website is thecourtnydeserves.com. So there's much more information there. There's also a tool that people can use to contact their senators by phone or email with just a couple clicks. And we hope that all New Yorkers will make their voices heard on this very soon. Okay. So Peter Martin from the Senator, the Center uh, uh, for, uh, Shoot, I forgot. The, 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 the Center, Center for Community, for community alternatives. alternatives. Yes. Thank you so much uh, for uh, joining us uh, today and uh, in sharing the, uh, this update on, uh, on the nomination. My pleasure. Thanks so much, John. Okay. Bye-bye. We'll be back with more after this short break. I said, baby, can I talk to you for a moment? Seems like I'm really feeling kind of lonely. No, I can't wait to see you That was Loving Arms by the Carter Project. You are listening to the Independent News Hour on WBAI 99.5 FM. I'm your host, John Tarleton. And uh, in our um, next segment, we're going to be uh, joined by my uh, uh, co-host, Amma Gagarian, who will be joining us uh, from Egypt. Uh, she's uh, uh, going to be there for the next month or two, and we're excited to have her be able to join us. Uh, but uh, first of all, uh, a couple of things. Uh always want to remind you that the phone number where you can call to 
support this station, 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950. I'll be uh, returning to talk about why, why you should uh, support WBAI and keep uh, uh, Peace and Justice Community Radio on the air as it heads into its 63rd year. Uh, but uh, I want to put that out there for you. Also, you can uh, donate at give number two wbai.org where you can make a one-time donation or become a WBAI buddy. Uh, so the WBAI buddies are so crucial uh, to the financial stability this station does have. Um, WBAI is facing some important challenges right now. Uh, it's behind uh, on its rent for the antenna and transmitter at four times square that allows the signal to beam across the New York City region and also behind on its rent at its uh, office and studio at uh, the Brooklyn Commons building. And we're downstairs from WBAI in that building. And, you know, again, uh, you know, we certainly understand how important grassroots independent media is because we do it, uh, you know, every day, every month, every year, just like WBAI. And, you know, for both independent and WBAI, uh, the support of the people who read or listen um, is so crucial, you know, Please, uh, before the show is out, call 212-209-2950 or go to give number two, uh, um, dot w, b, uh, give number two wbai dot org. And, um, so, uh, a lot, uh, has been going on, uh, today. We had the Republicans take control of the, the House of Representatives. There was a protest on City Hall that a lot of, uh, local officials participated in urging the Democratic Party uh, to oust its current state chair, Jay Jacobs. Uh, we were there covering that. Um, uh, Jacobs is seen as responsible for, uh, in part for the Democrats losing four, uh, seats in New York that really made the Republican majority possible. Um, also, uh, we, we have a situation where, uh, uh tomorrow the city council is, is going to begin to consider, um, a proposal to, uh, Switch 250,000 retired municipal, uh, employees, uh, to a privately run, uh, Medicare Advantage plan. Uh, so, uh, you know, some, uh, some real, uh, tensions in that Democratic Party coalition. And, um, also, uh, there was an, uh, incident that happened on Thursday. Of course, uh, Mayor Adams has made his, uh, stewardship of the New York Police Department the centerpiece of his uh, administration and his first term in office on, um, Thursday, uh, December 29th, um, there was, um, a protest and counter protest outside the Queens, uh, public library branch in Jackson Heights, uh, uh between the extreme, uh, about three dozen members of the extremist far right group, the Proud Boys, uh, who were protesting a, uh, drag queen story hour. Uh, this has be- become a, something that far right is doing across the country. And they brought it to Jackson Heights on Thursday. Um, and, and um, they, they were also met by a counter protest of over 200 people advocating and protecting uh, the, the story. They were protecting the entrance to the library where the story uh, hour was happening. And the um, activists who were there alleged being roughed up by the police uh, who seem to be siding uh, with the Proud Boys. And then also uh, uh, when things wrapped up and people uh, went home, the police uh, facilitated the Proud Boys being able to get on the subway without having to pay any fare. 
Uh, for other people who might do that, that might be fair evasion and, you know, all sorts of trouble with the police. But the Proud Boys uh, were allowed to enter the subway station for free. And I believe we have a clip of that. So that is correct. Uh, the Proud Boys are special, at least in the eyes of the uh, police who were out in, um, in Jackson Heights the other day ago. Uh, Amri Gagarin helped to uh, bring that to our attention. Uh, and she's uh, now uh, joining us from Egypt. Amba, welcome to the Independent News Hour. Hi, yeah, I was really stoked to um, hear the Proud Boys thanking um, our tax money because that is the very thing I am so upset about. So much of my tax money going to is I think like 66% goes to basically, you know, the cops or the military, whether it's state or federal. Anyway, um, yes, I am reporting live from uh, Red Sea in Upper Egypt. Um, forgive me if I sound a little tired. I am. It is seven hours ahead of time here, but I'm happy to be back on WBAI. And um, I have been here now for about a week and a half in Egypt. Um, I was in Cairo and Alexandria, and uh, I'm going to be in Cairo until mid-February. So I will be joining the show um, a little bit less regularly, just doing it when I can. Um, but, yeah, well, I'm we here. Certainly appreciate it's great. your commitment to uh, wanting to be with us as much as you can. Uh, you've been such a, you know, uh, really uh, – dynamic force in the show for the last year when you came on board as co-host. And, Thank you. Um, can, can you uh, talk a little bit about uh, uh, what uh, what brought you to Egypt? Yeah, well, so I'm here with my family, um, with uh, my aunt and uncle and some cousins, and, and my dad's side of the family is Egyptian, um, sort of Egyptian-American. My grandparents came over um, in 65 and uh this is the first time that myself and my cousins have been here so it's really exciting it's something we've been looking forward to basically forever um because our family is still very egyptian um when we go back home uh so so i'm here and uh yeah like i said we're sort of traveling around we visited um Cairo for a while because my uncle is from Cairo. We have a lot of family in Cairo and uh, my grandfather grew up in Giza right outside of Cairo and later lived in Cairo. And then my grandmother grew up in Alexandria. So I had the opportunity to sort of go back by and into the buildings of their apartments, um, which was really wild actually uh, last week. And then once my family leaves, I'm going to be staying here practicing my Arabic and just um, yep, doing some indie stuff from afar. So I look forward to sharing um, a lot with people as I get back, and and I'm happy to share some now. I I, I don't know how much you want me to go into it, John. Well, I now. think we may we may have to save some of that for maybe next week or future show. But can you give uh, tell people just a little bit of the backstory of how uh, your family uh, migrated to Egypt and. and- yeah, so uh my family is 
it's, it's, it's quite a mix on my dad's side. Um, I often just say Middle Eastern because, uh, there's a lot of moving parts, but, uh, my family came from, the, a lot of my family actually immigrated to, to Egypt um, uh, around 100 years ago or so, um, some from Syria, many from Armenia, escaping, fleeing the Armenian genocide, um, a genocide of Armenians, which is the indigenous, an indigenous group in the Caucasus Mountains by the Turks, the Ottoman Empire in I think like 1915 to 1917, like the estimates are rough because uh, all the records were burned, but the vast majority of Armenians were killed and, you know, have lots of family stories um, to prove that. Unfortunately, proving it is often part of the conversation because the Turkish government totally refuses to acknowledge it whatsoever since 2004. It's been a law that you can't even say Armenian genocide. So, um, Anyway, that's a little background for anyone who didn't know about it. But so my family fled to Egypt. There's a lot of Armenians in Egypt. There's That's probably, I think, the biggest diaspora area, if not Glendale, California, right outside of L.A. So that's how they ended up there. And so they've been a traveling people for a long time. Um, yeah. Right. And um, so... It- so when you say you visited the, the, these homes of, of of your grandfather and whatnot, and you're really able to start connecting the dots back into the past uh, um, with, with family members and and where where they came to when when they got to Egypt and had to start a new life there as as immigrants. Yeah, absolutely. I'll try to say briefly. You know, growing up here in the states. We knew we were Armenian, you know, we said that a lot, but culturally, totally Egyptian and and really actually associating more a lot with um, sort of Egyptian culture and language, obviously speaking Arabic, cooking Egyptian food and and having Egyptian friends and things like that. So coming here now, I'm realizing that a lot of this culture is super familiar, but that also, yeah, I mean, Armenians and Syrians are also sort of immigrants here. Egypt is a, is a culture and I mean, a, a place and Cairo is a city of immigrants, but I'm also really realizing that my family immigrated here too, because people talk about the Armenians like immigrants. Um, so going into my grandfather's old apartment building where his, his father, my great grandfather escaped the genocide was the oldest of 16 children to uh, leave to Cairo actually just before it happened, thought all of his family was um, slaughtered, but found out that the two youngest siblings were alive in a, in a, uh, um, in an orphanage in Cairo and found them. And just being in that man's um, apartment, I just felt a lot of sadness. So I don't know. It's it's there. And yeah, it's been making me think a lot. But I uh, I think there's more uh, family uh, content to be talked about in the next segment. So I'll leave it there for now. Right. Yeah, we definitely look forward to talking uh, more in future shows about what you're discovering uh, during your time in Egypt. Uh, We're going to continue to talk about family and and roots in our next segment uh, when we're joined by the Indies. uh, uh, Nicholas Powers, he wrote a really beautiful essay in our uh, December-January print edition about the life of his mother who uh, passed away last year, a radical New Yorkan activist um, and artist uh, from the late 1960s on, uh, you know, led a, a rich and a varied life going forward. And uh, if, if you want to uh, 
stay on for the conversation with Nick. Uh, you know, we welcome that on, but if you have to drop off, I know it's almost two o'clock in the morning in Egypt. Uh, totally understand, but we're, we're going to take a, a, a quick break here and, uh, and then we'll be back with Nick Powers. That was Kalik Bilbait by uh, Firuz. You are listening to the Independent News Hour on WBAI 99.5 FM. I'm your host, John Tarleton, and uh, my co-host uh, joining us uh, from the Red, by the Red Sea in Egypt, Amir Gagarin. Uh, you're going to stay with us uh, for this next segment. Yep, I'm still here. Hi, everybody. Hi, Nick. Hey, Ambas. Good to see you. Oh, well, hear you. Yeah, sorry. I can't have my video on. It's... uh low connection you know but anyway your your article was great nick had a great article um commemorating his his mom in the 60s generation that she was a part of uh in our recent december january issue right so let's hop right into it we we have just a little bit of a late start here but we still have about 15 minutes to talk talk about your article and your mom's life nick um in the article uh referring back to uh your mom in the 60s, you write, all the marches and slogans scooped my mother's life like a giant wave and lifted her out of the neighborhood, out of the family, and flung her into America. Uh, can you sort of set the stage here uh, with your mom and in and, and the late 60s and, and uh, how it transformed her life, as you, you hint at in that uh, quote from your article? Yeah, my mom's life is a measure of the psychological and social distance uh, between her living in a small, it's okay, in a small Puerto Rican enclave. <laughs> that's my, that's, that's the grandson. So I, okay, hold on, true. Okay, true, true. Just for oh. our listeners, our, uh, Nick has sure. a, a four year old son, the grandson yeah. of the one right. we're he, talking he about. He just got distracted again. Um, but anyway, just to quickly just say that, uh, her life and her article is kind of a measure of the psychological and social distance from a Puerto Rican enclave in the 1940s, um, going all the way to the really crisscrossing the United States, um, going overseas. I remember her going to, um, Spain and her telling me stories of visiting, uh, uh Spain under Franco and, um, 
So, you know, that's her life crossed so many political, personal and neighborhood boundaries. Um, you know, so she was born in 1948. And it, so she was 20 years old in 1968. So literally, she's kind of hitting a uh, prime just as a 68, you know, kind of moment is is hitting its peak. And how did that affect her? Yeah, she, you know, she was a translator between the English and Spanish speaking worlds. So the Spanish speaking, uh, you know, her parents, her neighborhood, growing up here, speaking English very fluently and translating between both worlds. But the Spanish speaking world was very old world. It was very, you know, her parents and the neighborhood were very traditional, um, conservative in many ways. And so the ideas that she was learning were coming in a sense from her English side, you know, coming from uh, being in the West Village, in the cafes, and watching someone like Allen Ginsberg. She told me the story many times of being in the cafe and seeing Allen Ginsberg and other famous beat poets compose poetry there and then stand up and tell everyone that they would like to read a poem. And people would just put down what they were doing and listen to the poet read the poem. And so she um, she read, she listened, and she began to live these new ideas that were drifting in the air. Right, Nick. And, you know, I, I thought something that's really interesting about that article is you talk about uh, the sort of glow of the 60s generation. So if you could explain that more and where you think it came from, but also in the article, you you, you say there's a photo of her holding you when you were just a baby or a toddler and that you can see the glow on her and you can see it on you too. But, you know, you're obviously from the next generation, I guess, Gen X. So what do you think is the relationship sort of between generations? We often talk about the tension between generations, but what do you think is the sort of positive relationship and the positive definitions there? It was free love. You know, mom, one of the ways that mom broke out of the the kind of immigrant conservatism, kind of working class ethos of that early Puerto Rican, New Yorican enclave was obviously the arts and then also the idea of free love, you know, dating multiple people at the same time. I guess, you know, the, the, the we would call it poly now, polyamory. Um, really kind of exploring her body through dance, taking psychedelics, you know, not often, but enough to get the point. And so the ideas at the time were about returning people to their bodies and trying to break out of the kind of social straitjacket of very conformism, 1950s morality. And then as the 60s went into the rearview mirror, um, I think what she, how she interpreted um, that free love ethos, that being in your body ethos was as a parent being very, very, you know, listening to me, treating me as an equal, loving. <laughs> okay. Come on over here. I think you got it. You got it, baby. And as you can tell, um, I try to pass that on with my son, which is that, you know, she wasn't a cold or aloof or distant parent. Um, and so the joy, that kind of free love ethos that she gave, um, to me is something that I pass on, you know, to my son. And, um, just kind of, I guess as a quick aside, I don't want to burn up too much time, but I, I think one of the consequences of working class life and, or being poor and the traumas that come with it, that, that it can close people off 
from their own bodies and also close off people from each other. And so there's kind of an authoritarian, very disciplinary uh, type of family structure that begins to, to, to get set. And one of the greatest gifts that she gave me was that kind of the, the free love, the openness of the 60s. She, I, I felt it as a child, not through the ideas, not through the political slogans, but how she held me, how we played, you know, running around the living room with, you know, water guns or dancing, um, you know, falling asleep in front of the TV, uh, talking to each other, her actually listening to, you know, all the stories the kids, you know, tell their parents. And, um, and I think she really kind of broke a cycle of kind of, um, you know, disciplinary, authoritarian type of parenting. And I benefited from it. And that's what I'm giving, giving to true. Right. And of course, one of the iconic moments of that, uh, 60s era counterculture was the, the Woodstock, uh, music festival. Uh, held in Bethel, New York in August of 1969. Um, and, and you recount a, a little bit of your mom's experience there. Uh, you just describe how she got there, how she ended up at the backstage of all places, uh, at Woodstock and just, uh, what yeah, her you know, experience was. It, it was all like, you know, by the, by the grapevine, you know, like all the cool young kids, you know, she was a cool young kid and, you know, they heard about the, the big event in Bethel, uh, Woodstock and then Bethel and, um, she was dating this brother from the West Village and, uh, you know, he was, you know, he was very flamboyant, you know, had the cowboy hat and he, but more importantly, he had his own Jeep. And so she was dating him and they said, Hey, let's go up to this event. So they drive upstate and of course, you know, they have to park their car far away from the gate, like everyone did. And they walk into the event and she got caught up in, in the swirling of people and the, the crowd waves and, and the rain dance and, and so they wind up separating. They just kind of lost each other in the crowd. Right. They and, didn't have cell phones to text each other with. No. And, and so what she was blown away by was that for the next three days, people fed her. They let her sleep in the, the Volkswagen or in their tents. And, you know, she was already a, a kind of off Broadway actress at that point. She had gone to the salsa clubs to the, you know, the rock and roll clubs. And she was a really big dancer. She loved to dance. And so somehow she just danced her way backstage uh, at Woodstock and was smoking weed with the musicians and the producers and, you know, and uh, and then after the the three days were up and the festival was over and everyone's streaming out of the event. So, of course, who does she meet? Again, synchronicity, serendipity. Uh, she meets her her date, who also had a great time and he wasn't angry at all. He He loved it. And so they rode back to New York City. Uh, he was so happy he threw his cowboy hat out the window. And, uh, and she said he was very chivalrous. He made sure that she got home safe. And, um, for the, for, for the rest of her life, when we talked about Woodstock, it was for her a spiritual and aesthetic turning point in her life because she realized that strangers can take care of each other and treat each other like family. And that really kind of opened up her mind to that other worlds were possible. More humane worlds, more kind worlds, more fun worlds um, were possible if people opened up their hearts. That's funny because my mom also has a story of getting stuck in a crowd <laughs> before the time of cell phones um, as a as a, a, a young boomer, but it was at an Evil Knievel <laughs> event where he was supposed to be jumping the Snake River Canyon. <laughs> totally failed. Anyway, um, that's a story for another time. But uh, I wanted to ask you, Nick, too, 
about some of the more at least uh, obvious outwardly political stuff, uh, which was her involvement or relationship with the Black Panthers and the Young Lords and the sort of political and community work that they were doing in the city at the time. And then I believe she got into some tenants housing work as well. Yeah. Yeah. So she was uh, her and her crew. I don't know if it was a formal crew or it was part of a larger organization, but she told me that they had a storefront operation where they were kind of 24-7 holding tenants' rights workshops to help tenants know what their rights were against landlords in the city. And that was one of her main, you know, forms of activism. And so she was never a formal part of the Black Panthers or the Young Lords, um, but she was part of the hippie scene. She was an activist. And so she hung out with them and she partied with them. And they partied pretty hard, according to her stories. And... She bounced back and forth between the hardcore activism and, you know, she said, you know, sometimes she got tired of the, of the rhetoric. You know, it, it, she said sometimes it felt like someone pulled a string on their back and they were just like, like just talking in rhetoric. And so she got tired of that. So she would hang out with the hippies and do LSD and dance and, and have fun. But then she got tired of the hedonism of the hippies and of their kind of, you know, chakra, new age, spiritual talk. So then she would hang out with the activists again. So she kind of just like bounced back and forth between these two worlds. And, you know, she would tell me crazy stories like, you know, how the young lords and the, and the Panthers would, what's wrong, true? Well, here, let me give you a kiss. Mm, I'm sorry. How the young lords and the black Panthers would, you know, get high and, and drink and, and hook up. Mm. This one. Which one? Oh, I'm sorry, baby. And Nick's being joined by his uh, yeah. son here, and but um, but yeah. So and I and it, I think the most important thing that she gave me about the '60s wasn't just the ideas, the the political positions. It was the really lived on the street in the club reality of you know people who were very earnest and idealistic, trying and sometimes tripping over their own feet to to make the world a better place. And so it was a very grounded story of, you know, again, people having affairs, people hooking up, people getting ahead of themselves, people being ambitious, uh, people, you know, being careerist. And at the same time, people sometimes going to jail, uh, confronting the cops, uh, giving hope to the poor and to the working class and fighting and sometimes having real tangible victories. And um, all of that, all of that was was part of the scene. Right. And. and- of course, I mean, the, the 60s would eventually recede into the past and uh, your mom ha- had to move forward with her life. And, um, she had you and, and raised you as a, a single mother and, and became a, a public school teacher in time. Uh, can you kind of just talk about how, you know, she sort of, uh, you know, re- returned to the uh, mainstream world and, and made a life, but it was, it was still informed by uh, some of the experiences of the, late 60s yeah she was at a a crossroads and she had gone to law school and at that point the corporations were really kind of poaching they were hungry for minority lawyers you know minority uh you know workers and so she uh got all you know she was in law school and she had a choice she could have gone into corporate law or she could um you know use that degree and help people (laughs) she could have used that degree to help people Oh, sorry. And, um, and what, and eventually what she did, she actually chose to be a middle school teacher for immigrant students in Queens and mostly Chinese and Mexican, um, students. Um, and they loved her because she actually, <laughs> she brought, she brought all of her theatrical skills, 
I see it in all of the lawyer skills um, to the classroom. And so sometimes she helps parents, again, figure things out with their landlords or with, you know, the documentation. She helped kids in her theatricality learn in ways that maybe some of the other teachers couldn't reach them. She spoke fluent Spanish, so she was able to reach the, the Spanish-speaking kids. So, you know, mom learned from the 60s that that the world really needed lesson plans and tenderness and not necessarily uh, another lawyer or, you know, someone else on Wall Street. Certainly not another corporate lawyer. Not another corporate lawyer or, or you know, just a, a brown Latina at Wall Street. Like, you know, she was like, no one needs that right now. What the world, you know, for her, what the world needs um, are teachers and nurses and musicians and artists um, and, you know, those who are who are actually working with the people uh, to improve life. And so right. she that was the turning point. Right. We'll have to uh, go here shortly. But, of course, uh, talk about the final chapter of your mom's life and having to say goodbye to her. Yeah, it, she was in getting dialysis in uh, Staten Island Hospital. And uh, during the dialysis, she she choked um, on her own, own spit. And so she went into a coma. She, her oxy, There was no oxygen in her brain. So uh, a few days later, you know, about a week later, she had been on the breathing tube. And so uh, me and, and my friends uh, gathered around her. We played... Uh, Aretha Franklin and salsa music and we moved her feet and we told her that we loved her. We read her, her favorite poetry from Lord Byron and we pulled the tube out. And in the last few seconds, she was able to turn her head and open her eyes and, you know, look at us one last time before she passed. And, and as she passed, we just told her that we loved her. We loved her. We loved her. And we absolutely did. So I'd like to think she uh, went to the next place on a big giant sofa shaped heart a big red heart just carried her over okay we'll have to leave it there but uh nicholas powers thank you for joining us again on the uh, independent news hour uh, and uh I, I urge everyone who can uh, get a hold of the uh, our print edition to do so I mean, there's a lot of great articles but nick's is uh you know really something uh, he's just scratching mm-hmm. the surface here and uh, of course you can find us online at independent.org as well the articles online also uh, Nick and uh, True uh, over there off in the corner. Thank you both uh, for joining us uh, this evening. Thank you, John. Thank you, Amber. And uh, we thank we thank our uh, board operator uh, Reggie Johnson. And uh, we'll be back same time next week. And what's our what's our final song for the night, uh, Amber? It is Motherless Child as performed by Richie Havens at you guessed it Woodstock ode to <laughs> Nick's mom. Thank you. Appreciate it, baby.